Before we begin, I'd just like to remind you that this episode is also available as a video. So if you'd like to check out myself and Andy in all our uh, glory, then head over to youtube.com forward slash at Pottywood. I just love the way you describe that. It's almost like when you go and visit another country and you see like stray cats and dogs. It's mainly you're going to the Warner Brothers lot and you're seeing stray wrestlers hanging around with a coffee, leaning against the wall, hoping that you'll call them over and give them a bit of food. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Puddywood. This is our podcast about movies, interviewing people from the movie business. I am your host, Joanne Parker, and joining me is co-host oh, Andrew Carson. So good having someone else introduce me. Steve hasn't done that in 85 episodes. So welcome, Joe. Finally, a, a member of the team. Uh, we have drugged you for the first of our party wood interviews and you've got no one to blame but yourself for this one uh, i will say um up front i do apologize uh i am feeling incredibly under the weather i've come down with some kind of virus this week which is really giving me a kicking so i'm going to do my best to get through the episode as best we can i've got a bit of a chill so yeah what we've got to talk about today is Please. uh when we finished off season five joe had the misfortune of telling us what her guilty pleasure in her Blu-ray slash DVD collection was. Can I just say that you've all teed me up for this episode? So this is no. on you, but go on. It's fine. I'll well, let you, for those I'll of let you, you who did see it, you will know that Joanne admitted to seeing Batman and Robin in her collection and the fact that she grew up absolutely loving it, even though her parents probably thought there was something wrong with her while they were sitting there watching it with her. I unfortunately spent money to go and see this at the cinemas as well uh back in 1997 25 years ago that's scary to think 25 years ago that this movie um came out so basically we, we had to go back and bring on our favorite warner brothers executive bill daly who was there around this time bill all the way from los angeles how are you i'm fine you guys are sick. I'm. I'm. Well, doing we'll see great. how it goes by the end of this episode. My constitution was strong enough to withstand um, yet another <laughs> viewing of this movie. Well, we're going to do a bit of a talk here today on it. Uh, we've collated uh, information from interviews, audio commentaries, um, books that have been written, articles have been written. Some of it, as always, is going to be true. Some of it is going to be false. And this is why we bring Bill on on these episodes to kind of wade through all of the BS and find out what is the true story behind this curious creature that was Batman and Robin. Now, what we have to look at here is 1997 was supposed to be kind of the big blockbuster year. So you had uh, Steven Spielberg's The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park. Um, which is unusual that you see Spielberg doing a sequel. So him doing a sequel to what was the biggest movie of all time at that point was huge. Uh, you also had um, Men in Black. Uh, we can talk about Men in Black, but we just choose not to talk about The Man in Black. Um, we also had Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, which was <laughs> huge, and Luke Besson's The Fifth Element. 
And all around that, one of the biggest blockbusters that everybody was looking forward to at the time was Batman and Robin. To go back here, the success of uh, Batman Forever, which is one of the biggest films of 1995, I believe. It was a tonal shift yes, from yeah. Tim Burton's Batman movies. Um, but it was a monster at the box office. And apparently the monster of it ended up with uh, Batman and Robin being fast-tracked into production. Bill, is that how you remember it? Uh, yeah, but the, the the Batmans were always sort of rushed into production. Not not so much the first one, but uh, once once Tim Burton came back to do the second one, then they were already thinking about the next one and then the next one and the next one. And I'm sure, I don't remember it, but I'm sure when we were doing this one that they were thinking about the next one as well. The rumor yeah. mill going around, obviously, Batman Forever introduced Val Kilmer into the role of Batman. And it was very surprising at the time that he was not coming back to the role of Batman in Batman and Robin. Now, the scuttlebutt online is that, one, he refused to return to the role. Uh, another rumor is that Joel Schumacher insisted that Kilmer not return because he was too difficult on Batman Forever. Now, they say that Kilmer apparently opted to do The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oof. Uh, but in, and he says that he claimed to be unaware of the fast tracking of Batman and Robin, uh, which is why he did not return. And some people online have claimed that this was his way of escaping the franchise in order to do the same for Paramount. So how do you remember? I don't believe he wanted to return. They didn't sign him to multiple de uh, multiple picture deal. Um, he didn't want to return. Um, we hear in general that, that Val Kilmer was difficult to work with, but I don't remember anything specifically on um, on the Batman film. In fact, um, my memory is that he was actually um, a pretty good experience on that film. So um, I don't know where all that's coming from. I understand why he wouldn't want to keep doing it because there really isn't that much for Batman to do. You know, the main character... Seriously, in all these um, superhero movies, and that would include James Bond, you know, the real main character is the villain. So why would you... Batman never changes. Batman never grows, never does anything. He's the same person at the end of the movie. He might be banged up, but he's the same person at the end of the movie as he is at the beginning. So um, I don't... Yeah. I don't see... There's never really an arc. Just need fresh face, and that's who we got. I mean, in the end of it, we got George Clooney with his back credit card. What more could you want out of a Batman well, franchise? Apparently, I mean, I'd like to kind of hear about the search for the new Batman because obviously, when Val Kim was not returning, I mean, it's one of the mm. key roles uh, in one of the biggest movies ever. You know, it can you can either be a, a Michael Keaton or a Val Kilmer, I guess. Uh, so, rumor mills out there apparently, David Duchovny. Uh, was a choice. Joel Schumacher really wanted uh, William Baldwin, who he'd worked together with on Flatliners a couple of years before. And apparently the casting of George Clooney apparently was uh, a decision of Bob Daly, the other Daly. Ironically, just last weekend, there was um, an article in... An, an article was brought up in another article... And um, Joel Schumacher said that, that George Clooney was his idea. 
he liked the shape of his face. Um, Batman always has sort of a square um, face there. And that he actually saw a poster of George in that Quentin Tarantino movie that George did. And that he took the ad and he actually got a Sharpie and drew the bat cowl on, really, on the ad. That's what he says. And drew it on the ad and said, there's my Batman. Art attack. I love it. And everybody at Warner Brothers loved George Clooney. He he is just as charismatic in real life as he is when you see him in the movies and stuff. And um, And it's always a pleasure to watch him. Um, my take on Bat- having seen Batman and Robin again, he it was a little too much. Yeah. The mannerisms and stuff were a little too much like the ER character he was doing. Yes. Love. And that was, my son was born that year. Um, so that was the year we stopped watching ER because we spent enough time in the hospital with my son that we didn't want to watch hospital dramas anymore. But um, But George is very much playing the same character as, you know, Bruce Wayne is pretty much yeah. the doctor character he played in ER. Down to the turtleneck, the lab coat. I mean, apparently George Clooney got injured during his production time. Was was that true? Like he had a bit yeah. of a limp on set? Well, he, they, um, Warner Brothers had a gym and George used to go to the gym and I never saw him working out, but they had a basketball court there and George was always there playing basketball. And let me tell you, they were, it wasn't some little like ER league, you know, this was a studio thing that these were, they were, he was playing with like the head of legal department. You know I mean? These were all tape A personalities that are less charming than George. Okay. <laughs> and he blew his knee out, and the, and the basketball court was actually outside. So when you went to the um, the front door of the gym, the basketball court, court would be slightly to the right. And they had, they finally they had to put a fence up around it because too many people were gathering just to watch George. And if you if if you wanted to impress um, any female prospective date material, you know you would you would look at the ER call sheets. And and uh, schedule your lunch with that person on the studio lot on a day when ER was working on the stage, you know. And you could pretty much be sure that George Clooney would be out there playing and and um, you know. I could just set the scene like, oh hey, hunt! What a coincidence! Look who's over there! Exactly. Yeah. I used to do that all the time. George Clooney's on set with HR being like, Mary, I've got a complaint for you. Right, okay, we're going to dribble this. There are certain scenes in a movie where you can see him (laughs) visibly limping. There is a scene where he's talking with uh, Michael Gow playing Alfred and they're doing this walk and you can see that he is very uncomfortable in his steps and and I picked up on that the other day. The other big (laughs) casting, uh, which was kind of quizzical at the time, obviously we've got to talk Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Mr. Freeze. Now, apparently there there was a lot of talk that you know, uh, Patrick Stewart apparently was um, approached. Anthony Hopkins was another choice that they were looking to do. And instead, they decide to go with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I hear that he was paid a record sum for his role as Mr. Freeze. Apparently, it was $25 million. So at the time, that was a record breaker. Um, apparently, he was only on set for yeah. 12 hours a day, including costume fitting. And you can see in a lot of the movie, and I think Chris O'Donnell said it in an interview as well, he spent no time around Arnold Schwarzenegger. Even when they were shooting, he had this stand in there was most of the time. 
Now, I can also tell you that apparently uh, the $25 million uh, record for an actor was broken um, only about, I think, seven years later by Arnold Schwarzenegger for Terminator 3, again for uh, Warner Brothers. So, Bill, how do you remember that? So, um, let me tell you what I do know, okay? Um, Arnold was the biggest star at the time. And yeah. maybe in retrospect, you know, because this script was so weak, maybe they thought they needed the big box office draw. My personal feeling was that we didn't need Arnold for this. The Batman, Batman is Batman, you know. Yeah. Um, yes, Arnold made $25 million on this movie, but it was a $20 million deal for his services, which was sort of what the big guns were getting. 20 million he broke no records with 20 million dollars but he did get an additional 5 million for um all the toys and stuff so so all the merchandising um they gave him a 5 million dollar in advance on on this um for all the merchandising stuff and i don't know how much he might have gotten after this movie was done i don't know what the merchandise stuff was but um yeah. so it was 20 million for the movie 5 million for the merchandising um what was the other part of your question <laughs> well uh apparently he was only you on know. set for 12 hours a day including costume fitting time really there's no reason for this stuff to go beyond 12 hour days if you have a seven o'clock call and that's yeah. the way it was in the old days when jack warner was running the place you could blow a cannon off at seven fifteen through the middle of the lot and you wouldn't hit anybody because when his his name was on that studio and he wasn't paying overtime for people to be standing around, you know. Um, I agree. I, I think that's a lot better. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, um, and a lot of big stars have that in their contract because they don't, you know, they just, they, they want their time to be used well. Plus they're into other yeah. things. You know, yeah. if you're going to have a full life, you can't, you're not going to, you will never have a full life if it's on a soundstage. Okay. And also like the amount of time spent in costume and makeup. I mean, just looking at the amount of face paint just to get that kind of like crystal effect. He must've been sat in there for ages. He's not going to want to be on set for longer than he has to be. Oh yeah. And he was, it. he was showing up at four in the morning for all that stuff. The makeup was pretty intense for him and then taking it off. It's yeah. equally intense. Plus it's a cumbersome yeah. costume. You know, and you want to get it off at every opportunity. Um, plus, it we, you know, we're not known for our cold weather here <laughs> in Southern California. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was very, very uncomfortable. But it's the same thing for whoever plays Batman. You're under a yeah. very heavy suit, nipples <laughs> and all, you know. And crotch plates, rubber, sweaty. It's it's not good to look for anybody, is well, it? Well, <laughs> uh, Schwarzenegger, obviously, he was doing a razor kind of just prior uh, to coming on as Mr. Freeze, another Warner Brothers movie that did pretty well the year before. And somewhere in between this, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger needed heart surgery. Uh, apparently, the rumor going out there, the studio was incredibly reluctant to insure him uh, for the role. He had the he had the heart surgery in April 1997. The, this movie was already finished, and was about to go out to the to the theater. We were about to um, go into the mixing stage with this. The heart surgery never got in the way of this production. It was a surprise to us that he needed it, um, 
but he did it at exactly the right time, right before he needed to go out and really promote the movie in a big way. But nothing, this, you know, the movie was shot in 1996. He had the heart surgery in April 1997. Based on that recent documentary that obviously Arnie's just released on Netflix, he talks about having like two surgeries back to back and it sounded like he didn't really have a choice when he was going to go in for that surgery. It was very sudden, we're rushing you in now. So if it was after... Yeah, they knew he needed surgery, and the big question was, um, did he get a mechanical valve or did he get an, a more organic valve? And I'm sure if the insurance company knew that there was a problem, that there might have been some reluctance, because um, that was an expensive movie. I'm sure that the insurance company would have been reluctant to cover him, um, but I'm mm. I'm just not aware. I wasn't in a position to know all that stuff. Well, this was also the first of uh, the Batman series of the four original films. This was the first one to have no involvement from Tim Burton because he was, uh, I believe, an executive producer on Batman Forever. Uh, was this a conscious decision by Tim or were you moving away from the Tim thing completely? Well, I'm sure they're moving away from the Tim thing completely. A lot of times, they'll just to keep someone, just so they can advertise that it was Tim Burton, They'll include the name, but the but the first one that Joel did was so successful that that there was no reason that we needed to have Tim Burton's name on it, and it, it and it's not a reflection on Tim's willingness to be involved or not. It was just you know it's just one of those things, you know. They they had Cubby Broccoli's name on the Bond movies even after yeah. he died, you know. But also this movie, uh, <laughs> I think probably one of the saving graces of this movie. Uh, the very little ones there is, was the casting of Uma Thurman, which was, I believe, one of her biggest roles in the business so far as Poison Ivy. Now, apparently the casting of Poison Ivy, there were so many names that were thrown out, from Demi Moore to Julia Roberts, and they settled on who's possibly one of the most beautiful women of the 90s, Uma Thurman. And she fully leans into this like it's the most fun she's ever going to have. Yeah, 100%. I've never seen someone play it straighter than she did. Last night, I was just sat there like, damn, what's going on? She was great. Um, we had seen her. She did Dangerous Liaisons for us. I was at Lorimore when that film was being produced, and that was a Lorimore um, film that, that Warner Brothers acquired Lorimore while that was in production, and, and so it has the Warner Brothers logo on it. Um, but, but Uma... We had seen in that she had been in some other things. I don't remember what. I, she was not a stranger to anybody Final when she analysis. did this part. But I have to say, yeah. oh, that was us too. That's right. Yeah, we used to call that one Fatal Paralysis because it took so long to get that movie done. <laughs> and she's gorgeous. I, you know, I went on the set um, when they were doing some of the Poison Ivy stuff. And she, oh, my God, she's six feet tall, wow. first of all. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea what? she was as tall as she is. Yeah. <laughs> and um oh my god, she was she was gorgeous. Even when she was playing the frumpy character, you know, there was something about her that was just very stunning. I mean, you know. Um but she did. She leaned into this and she had fun and she looked to me watching it yesterday, she looked to me to be the only person that was having fun <laughs> on this movie, you know. Maybe Arnold. Maybe Arnold had some fun. He was, he was the only thing that was more over the top than Uma. But Uma does it in such a way that that um, it's it's believable. 
You know, I mean, it, she, it, it fits, it, it perfectly fits with what they really wanted to do, you know. And you have to understand these yeah. movies in the Bob Daly and Terry Semel era, they were, they were from, they were comic books. They were, they were kids' movies. That's how they viewed these as kids' movies. Batman doesn't grow up until Chris yeah, Nolan comes around. Very true. And it's, it's interesting you say that as well, because like, just looking at the set design, the production, it does feel like it's come from a comic book. I was, I was kind of saying last night, it's, it's frustrating because obviously we all, we're all kind of saying like, oh, it's a rubbish film and this happened and that happened. But all of the set design, how the buildings look in terms of the color, the costumes, it's so nice and refreshing that you could almost believe it's come straight out of one of the pages of a DC comic and, and gone straight there. Exactly. And that was the idea. And, and even the way the camera, have you noticed camera angles, the, the camera would be canted, you know, you'd have yes. scenes where, you know, it's like that, the, the car is yeah. coming yes. at you, but it's like that, you know, and that was sort of reminiscent, I believe, I'm not sure, but, um, that it sort of reminded me of the old TV series back, yeah. um, God, I was junior high school in the TV I think series. It's, it's that and Battlefield Earth and um, Dutch Tilts in a Warner Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then um but then it's it's um so it was geared toward kids, um, but it was also more colorful than the comic books ever were. You know? Yeah. I never got into Batman as as a DC comic. I just couldn't the um it was too dark that there was this this even the panels on the comic books were dark and there was, and to show the darkness, there was this blend of blue and purplish ink that literally hurt my eyes. I mean, still to this day, there are certain shades of like lavender that I can't look at because it, it, it hurts my eyes. And, um, and that's what, that's what those comic books used to do to me. And I couldn't get into them and I couldn't understand why anybody was a Batman fan. I mean, and, and I knew enough of them, but I just didn't get it. I, just never gravitated to it. I mean, orange hurts my eyes, but that's just because that was the wallpaper <laughs> my mum picked when I was five, and it was god awful. <laughs> but um, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's it's yeah, like you said, it's so colourful. It's so nice. Like even the kind of the bosses, like you know when Uma's going into a new Turkish bath hideout, and you've got this guy decked out in neon paint with massive contacts in and I'm like when will we get that again we're never going to get character yeah. designs like this and that's a stark well not stark but it's a marked contrast to the way it was when Tim Burton was doing it Batman 2 could have been in black and white yeah. for all we knew you know with everything it practically was so also fans of our <laughs> fair game episode and there are quite a few seeing as though it's our highest viewed episode that we have ever done We'll know that uh, Warner Brothers seriously does not learn from casting supermodels in their movies. And in Batman and Robin, uh, they cast Elle McPherson as uh, the love interest of George Clooney. Uh, apparently, Elle McPherson has gone on interviews later on and said she was heavily edited out of Batman and Robin, including her death scene at the hands of Poison Ivy. And uh, I think... Of a lot of the negativity towards Batman and Robin, Elle McPherson's name is something that crops up quite a lot as an incredibly weak uh, mm. love connection for Bruce Wayne. She doesn't have many scenes, does she? And I didn't even know that she'd had a I didn't death either. scene until you've mentioned it. 
I never saw it. I didn't see the director's cut. I don't know if it was in there at the time. There was nothing wrong with Elle's performance. It's not her first movie. She had done a number of movies in Australia, and she's actually very good. And um, she's she's gorgeous in this in this film. I mean, the, the few scenes that she's in, she's gorgeous. She does, you know, the the short lines she has. She does them believably. There's, I I see nothing wrong with her performance. My guess is if they took out a death scene that it was probably too gruesome would be my guess. I, I wouldn't mm. put that down with L. I would put that down as something that didn't um, go with the flow of, of yeah. this being a kid's movie that Warner Brothers had intended. But there, but there's no negative thing on L. And I don't blame her for being disappointed if big parts of her um, performance were cut out, especially if that was the one if that was her best performance, that might've been what she felt really, really good about in the movie. Otherwise she was just window dressing for, uh, for George Clooney. Didn't they make a great looking couple though? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. I love Andrew sitting back like, let me think about it for a second. (laughs) But I don't think, um, I don't think there's anything to be read into that. I I think it has to do with overall tone of the movie, um, more than, um, a performance issue. Yeah. Honestly. And yeah. we didn't really need it. We see her. We know that George, or not George. Okay. We know that Bruce Wayne has a woman on his arm, but he, didn't he always have a woman on his arm in all the movies that when he goes to the cocktail parties yeah, and stuff like that? Yeah, I think it's mainly being the case of, obviously you yeah. had um, Kim Basinger, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Nicole Kidman, who all were, you know, really strong characters in their own right in these movies and then Elle McPherson it's kind of like it's almost like realistically you could take her character out and you wouldn't lose a thing yeah no you wouldn't uh, another kind of criticised character here was the character of Bane because it was such a radical departure from the cartoon and comic book version of the character and it was portrayed by professional wrestler Jeep Swenson who actually was a wrestler for WCW at the time so it's very easy to see how they just went in the house to find someone who is absolutely huge and apparently at the time he had possibly the lo- some of the largest arms in the world he was absolutely jacked um, unfortunately uh, not long after the premiere Jeep Swenson passed away uh, it was literally only a few weeks, apparently, after the premiere. Uh, did you ever get to meet uh, Jeep Swenson? Or was there any talk of any other wrestlers from your WCW camp taking that role? No, I did not meet him. Um, I abandoned those um, comic books like when I was 10 years old. I mean, I could never get into them, you know. And at the time we made that movie, I was in my mid-40s. So a lot of time had passed. I had no idea who the Bane character was. I heard a lot of people talking about Bane, especially leading up to the um, the Chris Nolan version. You know, I didn't care who Bane was. I didn't feel like I was missing anything. It ju- it didn't mean anything to me. Um, I I don't follow that wrestling. My my son wasn't born yet. <laughs> Okay, so I didn't know that much about. Like I knew what it was like when I was eleven years old, but. You know, again, I, a lot of time had passed. I didn't know who those people were. So with all, I have to ask you then, Andrew, is so did you miss Jesse Ventura 
in the I movie because he was one of the that, guards. That, that was coming up. <laughs> yes, apparently the, the guards that are taking Mr. Freeze in. What? It's one, Jesse the Body Ventura, and Ralph Mueller from Gladiator was the yeah. other guard. Yeah. Okay, that's oh, cool. incredible. You yeah, have two so... governors. <laughs> governor of Minnesota and the yeah. governor of California. Wrestlers always seem to be hanging around Warner Brothers for one thing or another. They're splendid actors. I mean, you're when you're in that ring under the lights, you're performing, you know, and they sell the tickets at the box office the same way they do in the movies. So um, they, they're all showmen. So I never really read anything into it just because they were, it seemed to be there was always somebody around. I just love the way you describe that. It's almost like when you go and visit another country and you see like stray cats and dogs. It's mainly you're going to the Warner Brothers lot and you're seeing stray wrestlers hanging around with a coffee, leaning against the wall, hoping that you'll call them over and give them a bit of food. <laughs> Rounding out the cast here, uh, you have uh, one of the hottest actresses in Hollywood, fresh out of Clueless. You have Alicia Silverstone finally joining as Batgirl. A uh, bit of a mix uh, from the original incarnation of the character who is supposed to be Commissioner Gordon's daughter in the comic books. In this, it is Alfred's niece. Um, uh, Alicia Silverstone did an interview not so long ago. She said most of her scenes were apparently cut out. Uh, the reason being she had gained weight during production and she couldn't fit into her custom Batgirl suit. Around this time, and I remember it, the press were absolutely mm. slamming Alicia Silverstone, weight shaming her uh, because that was going on. Um, in a podcast interview, storyboard artist Timothy Burgard uh, admitted he was kind of at fault because he had created a drawing of Alicia Silverstone, mocking her with the title Clueless to the Casting of Batgirl. Apparently the drawing was meant to be between him and the other artists there, but apparently the picture got out. Uh, Burgard states that he managed to keep his job because he had never signed the picture. Uh, Bill, what can you remember from around this time and everything that was going on? I think it was it's too much pressure to put on um, someone that young. It, it's, it was a great opportunity for her, but, um, but it's also a curse. It didn't do Chris O'Donnell any favors doing this movie. No. And he sort of comes off as a dick in it, I think. Um, yeah. It didn't do Alicia any favors. I, I wonder if it hampered her career after she that. She did have quite a slump. It's hard to put her back into some some huge... Nobody's going to trust her, first of all, to be the lead on a movie um, if she's getting the blame for ruining a franchise. Undeserved, as it is, but... It's such a pity because, again, that having all of the tabloids commenting about your shape, your body, and then obviously the film slumps, it's going to do a right number on a confidence when yeah. you think about it. Like someone like Arnie probably could have shrugged it off because, like you said, he's just done a razor. He's got so many films coming out that he's got behind his belt. George Clooney, like they're all going to take these wounds with them. Yeah. But I don't I think poor Alicia, like I think it just completely knocked her back. Yeah, I mean, and Chris O'Donnell it took a while for him to to bounce back from that too. These things just happen sometimes. I mean, I think the Batman and Robin, that movie, just seemed like it had so many pitfalls that like, it, whoever was going into that wasn't going to come out in one piece. Like making it more kind of toyified and yes. making it more cheesy and full of pun. I don't think I didn't get through. 10 seconds of the film until the first pun came out and I was sat there like here we go 
let's do it. Like, God bless Uma because she delivered them in such a way where I could almost believe that she wasn't saying a pun, but everybody else, I was like head in hand. But uh, but Uma very much committed to the material, and so did so did Arnold. You can't understand anything he says, but <laughs> he is having the best time of his life. He's got his cigar, he's got his slippers, he's got his big bathrobe. The there is nothing slippers. more that he wants. <laughs> he doesn't have to be there for more than twelve hours. <laughs> I hope he took those off set because I would have done that. Let me tell Naturally, you. Naturally, with this movie, obviously, you know, the, the spotlight was on it straight away from all of, of the build for it. And as soon as uh, the movie is underway, unfortunately, there was even more spotlight on it. Uh, for starters, apparently two extras were fired and arrested for attempting to sell secretly shot footage. True or false? Oh, that's true. I don't know that they were arrested, but they were caught. They were caught and they were like taken away, escorted off the lot. Eventually they were, um, they might've been charged with trespass. You know, you, you have to, you sort of have to do that. If, if, if it's the first person that's being, you want publicity to get out that this has been done and then people won't try to do it. But the, it was amazing. Um, I don't know what they would have done today. It's not like nowadays where you get a drone out, you could just get a little slingshot shoot yeah. <laughs> back then. Just more relaxed. Okay, also, uh, we had uh, the theft of Mr. Freeze's blaster prop, which apparently shut down production. Uh, an investigation was launched into this, and the police ended up finding the prop blaster in a film memorabilia collector's home. Well, oh. let me tell you. It's, it's true, um, but... If anything gets out to the press, it gets blown out of proportion because this, of course, is Batman. It's and everybody's—they're looking for any news, any news that was. If 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 Arnold's cat streak, if Arnold brought a cat into the studio and the, and the cat got away, that would have made the front page of the tabloids too, you know. So they they look for any little thing. I can't believe for a moment that they didn't have a double of that gun. I mean, you got to give credit if there's rumors out there that the Mona Lisa in the Louvre is not the real thing, that it's, you know, um, you got to give credit to whoever might have the real thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that is the same with Arnie's gun. We're going to compare the Mona Lisa with Arnie's gun. <laughs> it's just conspiracy theories abound, and, and any moron can make them up. And run with them, yeah. okay? So, and you don't even need to be an adult. <laughs> so, yeah. So, in going through here, let's talk yeah. about the delivery. Apparently, uh, Joel Schumacher delivered the movie two weeks ahead of schedule. Ideal in a perfect world, we schedule the answer print date for um, twenty-eight days before the um, the release of the film. Because we get a discount, or six weeks, actually it's six weeks before. There's a whole discount schedule. We get a discount with the lab printing all the prints if we deliver it um, sufficiently in advance that they can send elements to London, Montreal, um, Rome, New York, and Hollywood to do all the release printing. So so that's, a, that's always a goal to save money on the back end. But this film was earmarked for die transfer IB prints, and they are labor intensive. They take about two hours per reel. Now, real uh, an AB reel is only 20 minutes. It takes two hours to print these die transfer. Now, when we did the premiere, we 
we um, we were plattering the prints. So we went to Westwood to do the premiere. We we plattered the prints. They um, and then we do a run through during reel two on the take up platter. As so mm -hmm. the it goes from one platter and it goes through the projector down to another and then it it comes in and it and on the take up. I'm trying to. Okay, on the take up reel, it's the film is coming in like this. Yeah. A moth landed right on the platter and got taken up in the reel and became a permanent part of that print. Okay. Beautiful. And and we put a um the projectionist put a piece of paper right there so we could see where it was. We knew this we knew the scenes cuz the editor and all the assistants are there. They knew what reel that was. It was reel 2. I instantly got on the phone and, and ordered Technicolor to send us a replacement reel too. So once wow. the once the platter starts, you can't stop it. Okay, so um, so they ran. We ran through the whole thing, and then um, so that took almost the two hours. But with transport time and everything, we had to wait a half hour or so, and then the print arrived. We had to put that into the platter, and then we had to run the whole thing again. So I so I saw the movie three times in one day because we had to run it that night as well, you know. But the oh IB print God. print took we had to get real two and we had to make sure it matched, you know. It did. Technicolor did a a stupendous job with it. I mean, those die transfer prints are just gorgeous. Ultimately, that one little moth, the butterfly effect, you could say, <laughs> made you have to watch three times in one day. Well, speaking of soundtracks, apparently the lead dialogue mixer, Donald O. Mitchell, uh, stated that 95% of the dialogue had to be looped due to the noise levels during the shooting. Arnold, I know, had to be replaced. Arnold, very little of his actual dialogue in there is, is correct. Um, with the big party scenes and all that, I would imagine so. I would imagine that's correct. But I think we overproduce post-production all the time. I think a lot of stuff gets earmarked for ADR that doesn't really need it. And a lot of sound mixers um, can clean it up digitally. They can clean up, you know, with filters and everything. Um, so a lot of production, di more di production dialogue gets used than you would think. In this particular film, I I don't know. I really don't know. I was busy. Um, I, I, we had all these other movies going on at the same time. Dennis Verkler was the was the editor and very very good. I mean, one of the one of the best editors ever. And he had a really top-notch um, crew um, working on this, so mm. I trust I trust them. Entertainment Tonight, yes, that show. Entertainment Tonight stated that last-minute reshoots were the result of negative test screenings. Joel Schumacher has combated that, saying that the test screenings went well. How do you remember? They did. Um, they didn't score through the roof. Um, movies that are heavily laden with visual effects or animation never really score particularly well because you can explain to an audience all you want about how the effects that are in there are temporary and they might see some wires, yeah. they might see this and that and all this other stuff, but they don't get it. But this one had so many visual effects in it. Uh, it was so overladen. Um, I mean, really top heavy with visual effects that, um, and we only did one. We, I mean, we did friends and family screenings, but we only did the one really big, um, screening that was in Las Vegas. And speaking about the release, uh, obviously this gets released to kind of a lot of fanfare. Uh, it is the 
first Batman movie that was not the highest grossing movie of the summer. So what was kind of the, the attitude to around the time of the premiere, kind of the, the next day after all of the, the press comes in, you know, was it a case of, yeah, this is, this is not going to make it. Um, nobody was popping champagne on Monday morning. Um, they were already talking about how it, it, here's the thing is there was a lot of negative press leading up to it just because of the posters mm. and the whole thing about the nipples. Everybody remembers the nipples, but that's because they were on the posters. <laughs> so, so everybody was commenting on that and you get nippled to death on this movie, even before anybody has seen it. So, um, plus it, it, you know, if you have a really, really successful thing going, people will try to knock you off the perch a lot of times, but I would say, you know, it was also the summer of contact. It was also the summer of LA confidential. Um, mm. there were some real serious and seriously good movies that year. I mean, it is strange that it ranks as high, Warner Brothers' highest-grossing movie of 1997, both domestically and commercially, which is quite a surprise. Yeah. Well, it um, it was highly anticipated. I don't know uh, what was the big what was the big movie for the year. I mean, who I knew that was our big movie, but who was um, who beat us out that year? Do you know? Titanic. And that was December. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have also a curious link between the big box office hit that was Titanic and the commercial flop that is Batman and Robin. So there is a link between these two movies, and that is uh, the actress who plays the older Rose in Titanic also played Megri, uh, Margaret, also known as Peg, in the photograph on Alfred's desk. It's the same actress. <laughs> yeah, good I didn't know that. Year. That's actually pretty funny. Well, obviously, with um, the movie being released, obviously the blame game starts uh, doing the rounds. Uh, famously, George Clooney uh, refunds people who tell him they paid to see the movie. <laughs> so Clooney also, as we say, he blamed. I've himself. heard that, but I don't know if it's true. It sounds like him, though. Yeah, he would do that. I mean, he oh. even even if he wasn't really going to do it, he would say it. You know. Yeah, but he said it yeah. on um, the Graham Norton show when he was on there. He said he definitely does pay uh, people back <laughs> who have seen. Um, so, and he put a lot wow. of blame on himself for killing Batman. There was a, there was a lot of things on that. Uh, apparently, uh, the producer Peter McGregor Scott uh, he absolutely hated the tone and the emphasis on toys. Uh, Joel Schumacher blamed studio pressure uh, to make the movie more toyetic. And uh, Kiva Goldman even got a hell of a lot of blame um, for the kind of tone on on this movie. Well, you know, here's the thing. It's um, if it were me, if I were playing the blame game now, in retrospect, I wasn't I wasn't doing that at the time. And I was one of the people saying you can't blame George for this because George George was the the big, bright, handsome star that the studio wanted if they would have put him in everything if they could have, um, without damaging yeah. ER. Um, and they were lucky to get George for this movie, but it, it's Joel. I mean, the movie, if this movie is to be deemed a failure, the failure started when the posters came out. Yeah. 
Okay, Nipplegate. It's it's. I'm I'm telling you, that's when all the criticism started, was with the posters, you know, and they were just setting. It was just the the movie was just perfectly set up. I can't believe that Peter McGregor Scott would have complained about the tone necessarily because he had a lot of influence, and Peter was a great producer absolutely a great producer um sadly he passed away not too long ago um but i did i mean we laughed our asses off here at home when we were hearing mcgregor syndrome <laughs> in the movie you know and that was an inside joke and and we were laughing every time we had a screening you know at the studio the people from the studio were laughing when they heard that you know that was that's just one of those inside jokes um akiva he's really good He's a really good technical um, writer, movie writer. Um, and and I've heard criticism of him. I, I never heard the deep criticism of him on this movie that you guys are expressing, but I've heard criticism of him on, on other movies um, that he's done. It's it's really the director. If, you, if you're going to cast... Because uh, Joel certainly would have gotten the credit if this movie was, was great. All the same people we're pointing to right now you know, with blame, would have gotten the credit. Every single one of them would have gotten the credit. They'd be fighting over credit, you know. But this, yeah. it all started, the tone was set by Joel Schumacher. And and I don't say that in a bitter way because I Joel Schumacher I loved and, and we loved working with him. Everybody did. It was always mm. a delight to work with Joel. But, um, but if anybody killed Batman, it was Joel. Everyone's amped up thinking, right, okay, there's nipples on the poster, what else? Did I? First 10 seconds, rubber cod piece comes straight up to the <laughs> yeah. camera here. And I'm the like, butt, yeah. this is, it's just the tone yeah. and the bat butt. We love it. We love I will have that really... cod piece delivered to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All my life I've wanted this. It's going to go right on the fireplace. Anyone comes in, I'll be like, right there. In kind of rounding out the uh, legacy of uh, Batman and Robin here. Now, apparently, uh, Joel Schumacher was saying that he was trying to have meetings following Batman and Robin. He was trying to convince the studio to let him helm another Batman movie. Uh, there was word around there was uh, either a, a Batman triumphant or Batman Unchained. And apparently they were cancelled due to this film's box office takings and negative reviews. Uh, the rumor has it that it would be the Scarecrow uh, as one of the villains. I remember back in the day that they were talking about like Jeff Goldblum as the Scarecrow and stuff like that, and in the rumor of the press that was going out, which would have been cool actually. Wow. <laughs> I think he would have really delivered with it. But um, what what can you remember about this? Was it all like nope, definitely no more Batman? Draw a line in the sand. No, they. Um... They wanted to take a break with Batman. They didn't want another one the next year. I mean, it would be nice if you could have one every year, but there was definitely okay. Let's um, let's take a break for a while. That happens all the time, though. Let's let's take a break from. It might be a particular actor or actress. Let's just take a break. We've had we've had enough of. I don't want to damage anybody's reputation right now. But we've, okay, let's just we've had enough. They never did that with Tommy Lee Jones, but okay, we've had enough. Yeah, and. But Joel, you know, Joel did Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. That was a Warner Brothers property. We own that. Lorimar. That was actually a Lorimar property that Warner Brothers appropriated. Um, 
and Joel did that. Um, Joel did some other movies. I don't think for for us necessarily, but yeah, he um, went on to eight millimeter. And then when Chris Nolan came in, probably two thousand three, when we started shooting Batman Begins, and it's and it was certainly taking shape in two thousand four. Well, on the last note for uh, Batman and Robin, uh, obviously uh, everyone from Christopher Nolan to uh, Kevin Feige at Marvel has said uh, this is kind of an essential superhero movie on how not to make a superhero movie, which is a bit rich if you've seen the last bunch of Marvel movies that have come out. Uh, Following Joel Schumacher's death, this film has gained a cult classic following. Uh, There are people who are rediscovering it. Obviously, it's not changing how bad a movie it is, but they are starting to kind of rediscover it. Ethan was watching it uh, with me the other night. And in, in two of the greatest moments, the first one, you had the uh, the ice hockey scene at the beginning to which Ethan, eight years old, turns to me and said, what's going on? <laughs> which was like, perfect. But he, he birthed, yeah. he, he absolutely burst out laughing as soon as he saw the back credit card. And I'd love to know where that back credit card is somewhere today. <laughs> oh that's right that's right he did he did have a bad credit card that's right yeah <laughs> don't leave the cave i, I remember seeing that I, at this time around this time around yeah <laughs> well you know um they could have had a trade out they might have had a trade out was there a bank on there or mastercard or visa or anything like um, that it was i think i think it was, a, was no, american, american express? express yes don't leave the yeah, cave they might have had a trade out yeah you know we haven't spent any time at all blaming Arnold Schwarzenegger for it either. You know, he's the guy, he's the only guy that made any money on it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And he, he put us through three hours of bad puns. When you hire Arnie, you're getting Arnie at the end of the day. He wasn't exactly going to be doing Macbeth. Okay. uh, On the last point, uh, is there any truth to the rumor that this was originally planned to be a shared DC universe alongside the scrapped Superman Lives? No. Okay. There was. Um, oh. They were trying to revive Superman. Yeah, I mean Superman three. I mean and beyond. Look how bad they were. That <laughs> sort of killed the franchise. They were trying to revive Superman, but they didn't want to take away from Batman and that was that's always been true even and then when Chris Nolan took on Batman he became very protective of it so like he he objected to Batman be, being part of Justice League and all that he thought that his that it was yeah. diminishing the the value of his work um so I don't think I I don't think they wanted to combine these things because they if you did them right they stand it alone. Well, for those of you who are curious to see uh, George Clooney's Bruce Wayne and uh, Nicolas Cage's Superman, you will be happy with The Flash. That's all I'm going to say. Put a spoiler alert on the front of that. But you know what? Everyone who wants to see it has seen it now. All right. But yes, you do get your... I thought it was really cool. What they did with the flesh, I thought was really, really cool. Um, You talked it up so much that I never, I I hadn't planned to see it or anything. You, but you had talked it up so much, and I thought, okay, I I need to go see this because at the very least, I need to have something to talk to Ethan about the next time I see him. So, um, 
so I went to see it, and it was so nice to see George Clooney. And 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 we were talking here at home earlier about Nicolas Cage with the Superman thing that you know that he was going to do. You know, it was just it was so cool to just see all of that stuff there. You know, in that movie. So never thought he'd be back on screen, but here we are. <laughs> Years, years it, it was later. a fabulous close for George Clooney and the whole Batman myth that he comes back just for that cameo yeah. and it almost steals the entire movie. And he has a sense of humor. Yeah. Well, there you have it. We've managed to run the gamut on 1997's Batman and Robin. We've dispelled some of the rumors. We've heard some truths. We've heard some stories that probably we've never heard before. Well, Bill, as always, we love having you here on the show. We get our real education behind the scenes of some of these iconic movies. Ten to one, most of the movies we bring you on for are the much less celebrated ones, but sometimes they're the best stories that we can hear. No one else wants to talk about them. Including me. I want to talk about them. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Well, you'll have to go back and listen to The Green Lantern then. (laughs) Prepare yourself for when Bill returns for his Jonah Hex episode. (laughs) (laughs) Never, never. (laughs) Get me on screen when that happens. We can talk about it over drinks, okay? Well, um, thank you very much uh, for joining us on Partywood this week. Uh, Thank you again to Bill Daly for his uh, gracious return. Uh, True superhero (laughs) that he is. And if you want to get involved with the conversations of Partywood, uh, you can find us. Where can you find us, Joe? You can um, find out more, kind of watch all the episodes and catch up on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the socials, even LinkedIn if you're really that kind of like business boss bitch, which not many of us are. But, you know, we're out there. Come and check us out. And also, more importantly, we have our Patreon Now, Patreon is going to be very active. Not only can you get early audio episodes of these very episodes before the video one goes out, but there's also exclusive content there that you can come and join us on Partywood After Dark. Uh, There's a bit more risque conversation going on. We will be opening the After Dark bar, luxurious jazz bar setting, where you can come and listen to us talk about whatever. And the more important thing is we need your subscribers. It's right there. It's below us. It's the freest thing you will do. It's not even going to change your life, but it can change ours. So please subscribe. And that way you will be alerted to the episodes as they drop. So, Joanne, official welcome to the team. You've survived your first episode. Good luck with the edit. (laughs) Thank you very, very much. What what a cool first one to edit, though. Like, I'm, I'm... Looking forward to this one. Also, we want to say uh, for all of your corporate video needs, there is only one company that you need to contact. Joe, who would that company be? I don't actually know. Uh, no, no. It's me. Um, so, uh, Blue Caribou Productions, if you can check us out on all of our socials Instagram, LinkedIn, unfortunately, Facebook, Twitter. We're here and we're ready to film some content for you. And with that in mind, We are going to sign out on this episode of Batman and Robin. So until the next time, Bill, uh, we hope you enjoy your uh, rather warm L.A. weather. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I will see you next week 
on Pottywood. So it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. See you next time. Yeah.